You know, he demonstrates his love for us even when he sometimes says no to us. You know, we live in a culture that has an adversary type of relationship to the word no. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, our culture basically says, I don't want to hear that word. I don't want to think of something that is off limits to me. I, I don't, I, I just don't want to be a part of that type of world. And sometimes, sometimes even in our lives as believers, we can adopt that type of attitude. Many of us, I mean, many of us would agree. We don't like the word no. We want to do our own thing. We want to accomplish our own task. But God speaks to us and he says, there's some things that are off limits. There's some things that I just do not want you to be involved in. And he does it for our benefit. He does it so that he can produce holiness in us and eventually produce happiness and joy in who we are. I want you to see that this morning as we look at the book of Genesis once again. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is, we look at those first few verses of this chapter. And to set this chapter in context, we're to be reminded in chapter 2 that God had taken Adam and he had placed him there in the garden, this beautiful place. And he had said in verse 15 there, he said, I want you to work it. I want you to tend this garden. I want you to take care of it. And then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, he basically said, but there is this one tree, this tree of knowledge that will bring knowledge of good and evil. He says, this one tree, you will not eat of that tree. There is one thing that is off limits to you, and it is that tree. That was what God said. That was how God spoke. But yet Satan came, and in his own crafty, devious way. He began to attack the truth of God's word and he began to appeal to the desire of humanity. I want you to see that beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Again, God just gives this straightforward command in chapter 2. And he says, I want you to be able to enjoy anything and everything that this garden offers to you. But there's just this one tree, okay, that is off limits to you. That is the simple command. It, it, it is so simple and yet so significant. Here they are in the garden with that command, with that word from God. God had spoken it to Adam. And the scripture says that Satan comes to deceive. He comes to deceive Eve in particular. It says that 
He comes as a serpent. Now, I do believe this is a literal serpent, which may have looked differently at the time because as I read it later on, I see that there are some things that take place in this creature's appearance that will make that creature more ghastly. And it is a ghastly appearance when you see a serpent today, isn't it? There you go. There's the reason we don't pick them up here in this church and hand them down the bench or the pew, right? There's something that is disturbing about the appearance of a snake or of a serpent. But here, this serpent was crafty, obviously, the creature itself. But don't miss this, that Satan somehow was using this creature to bring forth this temptation. With God's word clear, with God's word simple, with God's word presented to the man, Satan comes and he begins to attack the truth of what God said. He attacks the certainty of truth itself. Notice this in the passage. It says, has God indeed said? Are you, are you sure about that? Are you sure that God said this? Are you sure that it is truth? Are you sure that it is absolute? Can't you just hear those words in, the Satan, in Satan's vocabulary? Can't you just hear him as he speaks? Are you positive? He attacks the certainty of truth itself. And what's amazing is that Satan continues to use the same techniques today. Satan continues to use the same techniques in our culture and in our personal lives. He'll come to us and he'll tempt us and, and he might even say, are you, are you sure that God really said that? Is there absolute truth behind that? All across our culture today, there's the questioning of the certainty of the truth itself. As a matter of fact, there are many in our culture that believe that there is no absolute truth. I mean, we hear this preached at us daily, do we not? I mean, they, they, they use that same idea. Has God really said this? Or is this just what you've been taught through the years? Is this just the, what the church has just pushed upon you? Is there real truth? See, today in our culture, there is this idea of relativism which is developed. The idea that, well, it may be truth for you, but not truth for me. It, it, everybody has their own personal subjective truth that defines right and wrong, truth and untruth. I mean, that's the culture in which we're living. That is the culture that is creeping even into our churches. I hate to admit this, but I believe it is that kind of mentality that is somehow infecting our pulpits and our pews today. Well, it may be true for you, but it isn't necessarily true for me. One view is as good as another. Well, let me say to you that there is absolute truth. If you read through the scripture, if you hear what God says, there is absolute truth. In this, in this case, Yes, God had said, do not eat from that tree. It was an absolute truth. God, 
God had given it to them very plainly. And yet Satan was attacking the very certainty of truth itself. It is still the strategy that he uses today. Sometimes he'll clothe it in language like this. He'll say something like, well, you just got to be more open-minded. You got to be more open-minded about this, that, that maybe there's not absolute truth, but, you know, there are all these different nuances of truth. Open-minded. I love what Dr. James Travis used to tell us at Blue Mountain College. Have I ever told you I went to Blue Mountain College? You know that? Great place. Dr. James Travis, he used to tell the preaching boys at Blue Mountain College, he said, you ought to be open-minded. You ought to investigate. You ought to examine. You ought to consider things. You ought to be open-minded. But don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. I've carried that with me through the years. I believe that we should be open to study, that we should be opening, open to examining things. But we also, also should know that there is truth and that we're not so open-minded, as he said, our brain just falls out. Let me give you an example of the madness I think we're seeing even in the church's life today. A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Canada. And friends, it is a whole lot cooler in Canada than it is North Louisiana. The high up there a couple of weeks ago was like in the 30s. And uh, I, I put on all of my extra clothing. I mean, I, I survived. I was kind of ready for some 80-degree weather. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm not built for 30-degree highs, Okay. I was up there and we were talking and we were talking to some of the folks who were involved in the evangelical churches. And I was asking them about the religious climate of Canada and certainly the other churches that were there. And I asked them specifically about a church that I'd heard about. It, it's called the United Church, basically, of Canada. And what this is, is basically a church that some years ago took all the different types of denominations. They all kind of came together together. Not every one of them, but a lot of them came together to unite in this one church some years ago. Well, through the years, it has drifted, I think, from its biblical roots. You can go online and read even their confessions and what they would say. But perhaps in the last few months, they have reached a new height of madness in Toronto, in Toronto. They now have a pastor who claims to be an atheist. Think about that a moment. A pastor who claims to be an atheist. You can go on. You can read the back and forth of the church. And the church is trying to decide, is that appropriate or not? And you know, they're not Baptist, but they ought to be Baptist in some sense because they've got a committee together to study whether or not this would be appropriate. And there is this public outcry, even from the culture there in Canada, even around Toronto. Why would the church, why would the church defrock this minister simply because she says that she is an atheist? Read it. We have reached a new level of madness in our culture and even in our churches. When we, 
when we move to the point to where it's just about, well, what's right for you and what's right for me, we miss God's absolute truth. There is a place where open-mindedness borders on insanity. And I think that's what you're seeing in the case there in Canada. Others will say, well, we, we can't embrace absolute truth because that would in some sense indicate that we're judging. And you know what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, we do not judge. Have you noticed that we quote Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 more today than we do John 3.16? Our culture does. That's the one passage that they know. And no doubt, listen to me, listen very carefully to me today. We are not in the business of condemning people, and we never should be. But just simply because we don't condemn does not mean that we do not discern. So many forget, as they read Matthew chapter 7, they forget verse 6. Most people wouldn't even know what it says because we're so caught up in those first few verses, we miss Verse 6, verse 6 basically says, be careful about throwing your pearls before the swine. Jesus said this. This isn't, Jesus said, use discernment. No, you do not condemn people. Only God has the right to judge and to condemn an individual. But God has called us to use discernment in who we are. In the way we relate to other people. To recognize that there is absolute truth. Let me say to you that this system, this relativistic system, is inconsistent, illogical, and self-defeating. I believe it is. When you think about it, just think about it. Just listen to the relativist who says... There is no absolute truth. Always want to ask, are you absolutely sure? (laughs) Even in the statement that you make, you are declaring an absolute. Your argument is illogical, inconsistent, and self-defeating. They're not consistent in the way they look at the world. Think just a moment. If I were to pose before you this idea, was Adolf Hitler a bad person? You would say, absolutely. And you should say that. Absolutely. If I were to ask you if Mother Teresa was a good person, you would say, yes, she was a good person. Even the relativist that says there is no absolute truth, even the relativist would have to agree that there is something there that determines that this is is a good behavior and this is a bad behavior. It is self-defeating. Even to the point of persuasion. The relativist would say, hey, you shouldn't try to persuade somebody. Or let me just say this. In a relativistic culture in which we are moving... Evangelism has no place. Because you cannot, you cannot somehow force your views 
on someone else. Do you see the slippery slope that we are on? This idea you cannot force your views. Friends, we don't force our views, but we preach the gospel of Christ. And if we are not careful, the culture in which we live will try to muzzle us. Oh, I haven't mentioned this in the last few weeks. I've mentioned a lot of other things, obviously. But let me, let me just wait out. I'm going to come back. Let me just wait out in this, okay? If we are ever told as a church that we cannot share the gospel of Christ or somehow minister as God has called us to, we ought to be willing to give up our tax-exempt status because it is more... Friends, this is not about the money, but it is about the ability and the liberty to preach and to speak as God gives us direction. Some of you are like, whoa-oh. We should never allow enticements to keep us from preaching what God has called us to preach. There is absolute truth. Well, Paul Copen says that moral principles are true invariably and universally, that they always have and always will normatively apply to all rational beings, no matter individual, cultural preferences, or opinions. He further declares, truth is truth. Listen to this. Truth is true even if no one knows it. Truth is true even if no one admits it. Truth is true even if no one agrees what it is. Truth is true even if no one follows it. Truth is true even if no one but God grasp it fully. Truth is true. And that is what we see here. Satan comes and he says, did God really say this? Is there really absolute truth? He attacks He attacks the certainty of truth and he attacks the credibility of truth. Notice again, even in this idea, did God really say this? What he said was it was it really credible? God did say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Didn't he say that? I mean, God's got a credibility. He tries to undermine the credibility and the reliability of God's Word. And Satan still tries to do this. And for many years, under the guise of scholarship, people have attacked God's commands and God's Word. Again, none of us, none of us should abandon scholarship and who we are. We should seek that which is right, that which is good. But we know through the years that there have been those in our culture that have continually tried to pick apart God's Word. Just just as Satan comes here to Eve, Satan has come to our culture. Satan has come to some of us and said, "Can can you really believe what God has said? In particular, over the years, they have attacked the Scripture itself. Well, I can tell you that the Scripture that we have is reliable, trustworthy. You can count on it time and time again. The Scripture. God's Word to us. Paul identifies it as the God-breathed Word. The God spoke it. And as we have gone through the years of scholarship, for me, as I've seen 
the different demonstrations of the reliability of Scripture, I am more convinced today than I ever have been that we have God's Word to us and that it is the authority for our lives. Satan, though, comes with half-truths. We'll see that in a moment. But again, Satan attacks the certainty and the credibility of the truth. And then I want you to notice this. He attacks the character of the truth. Now, the woman responds. She says, well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now, it's been pointed out time and time again that she added this part. Whether Adam miscommunicated it to her or whether she just added, God never said he couldn't touch it, okay? And it's been pointed out time and time, maybe she should have listened a little more closely to the word. But anyway, she distorts the word in some sense. Then the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does he say? He attacks the character of the truth. He basically says, God's holding out on you. You know that, right? The reason God told you you can't eat that, tree, of that fruit of that tree is just because God wants to keep some of this back for himself. This joy, this knowledge, this goodness. I mean, he's trying to keep it back for himself. God is trying to hold you back. Now listen again in our culture. Satan comes to our culture and says, Hey, those things that you hear at the church, those things that you hear in the scripture, those things will keep you from enjoying life the way you should. You, You just need to throw off all of those things and just enjoy life. You see, the idea of our culture today, the way they look at God is that God is this cosmic killjoy. That God has no fun, and His role in life is to make you as miserable as possible. Right? Some of us, we probably thought our parents acted like that at times, right? We thought that's the way, we thought they just did not want us to enjoy life. They acted miserable sometimes, and thus they wanted us to be miserable. That's the way we kind of responded. First, let me just say that my God is not a miserable God. My God is the most joyful being in this universe. He embodies joy itself. And I think he calls us to enjoy and to have joy. But he knows that the Our happiness, our true happiness, our true joy lies in understanding his word and responding in obedience to his word. Constraints in our lives, saying some things are off limits, that should not impede our joy, but it should encourage our joy. Wayne Grudem gave an example some years ago as he talked about two individuals, two men who jumped from a plane. Any of you ever skydive? No one in this place? There you go. One courageous person, Bethany, in this whole place. 
two, two guys go out to skydive. One wears a parachute. The other does not. They jump out of the plane. They're falling. Both of them experience the exhilaration of falling to the ground. As I mentioned, one has a parachute. And you would say it is a constraint, would you not? I mean, it is a constraint. It's wrapped around. It's a constraint on you. But to be honest, that guy never really thinks of the constraint because he is just falling freely to the ground. And as he gets closer to the ground, as both of those individuals get closer to the ground, one realizes that the constraint is there for your enjoyment. While the other realizes without constraint, there is devastation and destruction. Would you say that the parachute has impeded the freedom of the one who jumped? No, you would not say that. You would say that the parachute was a blessing. That it helped the individual enjoy the fall even more. Knowing that there was safety and security. I say to you, I submit to you, that God gives us constraints in lives, not simply to limit our joy, but to encourage our fulfillment. It is nice to know that there are constraints. To know that God has cared about us to say, hey, these things are off limits because they can be destructive and devastating to you. The last few weeks on Wednesday nights, I've looked at the Ten Commandments some. And sometimes when people have approached the Ten Commandments, they have approached it as thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And it just seems just to be so negative. People are turned off and think to themselves, why would I subscribe to such a negative type of system? Those individuals have missed the positive, life-giving message of those commands. God gave those commands not again to impede, not in to, in, to impede joy or fulfillment, but for us to know what true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment are in our lives. Take some of these just for a moment. This one we covered last Wednesday night. Don't steal. Don't steal. If we decide, well, that doesn't apply to us. That might have been couched in cultural language of the Old Testament. It's just, it, it doesn't apply to us today. And we go out and we steal something. Or maybe somebody else decides to steal something, steal something from us. It will wreak havoc on our personal lives Many of us in this place, I shared last Wednesday night my own experience where somebody broke into my house when I was younger, to my parents' house, and they stole things. And it wasn't just the removal of physical property, but it was a damage to the psyche of my whole family as we recognized that somebody had broken in and had stolen something. God gives us commands so that we will know the true joy and blessing of living in the community. Friends, when Jesus, when 
God gave the command and Jesus reiterated this idea of not committing adultery. He did it for our benefit. If we reject it and say, oh no, we're going to do whatever we want. We'll allow our passions to drive us. You will continue to see broken homes and relationships. You see, God knew what was best. Satan can say, oh, God's trying to hold out. No, God knew what was best. And he has given us these restraints so that we might live according to his will. Well, really, you'll notice in verse 6, not only did Satan attack the truth, but he appealed to the desires. He appealed to our thirst, our passions. Verse 6 said, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. I don't know if this reminds you of any passage, but every time I read Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, I always go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is what John wrote. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world and the world is passing away in the lust of it but he who does the will of god abides forever did you hear that verse 16 the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life it describes for us exactly the temptations that eve had It says, when she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life itself. When she saw these things, she took and she ate. Tim Keller said that we live in a community in a culture today that prides itself more on self-assertion than self-control. Today we celebrate asserting yourself, not controlling your passions. And yet, the virtue of the scripture is self-control. But today, sensuality, passion drives our culture, drives us so often. It says that It appealed to her flesh. She could eat it. It appealed to her eyes. And it appealed to her ego, to her pride. You know, as I look at this, I'm also challenged. Challenged by what my high school Bible teacher used to tell us. My high school Bible teacher used to make a statement to those of us in his classes. He would say something to the effect... If you don't stand next to the tree, you won't eat of the tree. I remember him telling us that. And he took this passage and he talked about how Eve was, it was kind of like she was right there. You ever ask yourself, like, there were so many other trees around she could have been standing by. But she's in the midst of the garden right by the tree so that she can see it. She can desire it. The passion's there. All these other trees. God had given her all these other trees to enjoy, but she's right there. 
I've been challenged through the years by that statement. Because I know that I have my own temptations, my own desires, just as you do. We struggle with those things. But what God has impressed upon me is if we don't stand next to the tree, we have a whole lot more, we have a whole lot harder time eating from the tree. Right? What what does Paul say? In the New Testament, he says, flee from every appearance of evil. Just get away from it. Just get away. Remove yourself. I challenge those of us. If we know that there's going to be temptation at that party we're going to, let's just not go to the party. If we know that there's going to be temptation, when I go to this, let's just not go. Because Satan will use these appeals to our flesh and our eyes and our pride in order in order to tempt us each and every time. Well, it says pride of life. In some sense, it was kind of like she saw that it might be good for knowledge and maybe she could be like God. So she ate. Ego and pride. You know, sometimes people will say, well, isn't it prideful that we insist on one authoritative truth? Isn't that prideful to say that there is an absolute truth and you know what it is in the Scripture? See, I don't think that's prideful. I think that's called humility, of recognizing that there is a God above, that there is truth, and we are called to obey it. I think that's humility. You know what pride is? Pride is determining in your life that you will decide what truth is and that you'll follow whatever you want to follow. That's prideful. And that is the pride that you see here in this passage. But oh, how Satan appeals to that prideful nature that we have. The ego, just doing what we want. Doing what we feel is best. There are some things off limits. Yes, there are. But God has placed those off limits for our benefit and for our good. Satan will come. And folks, he will attack the truth every time. He'll attack the truth. He'll appeal to our desires. But we must recognize time and time again that God, that God is interested in life. He's interested in us. Jesus came that we might have life and we might have it what? More abundantly. So he's tried to remove these things. He's told us not to involve ourselves in these things that will somehow damage our understanding and our enjoyment of what life is. Today, if we would accept those things, we would follow him. We would see abundant living, who we are. And we would be able to see him glorified in our lives. May we embrace his truth. May we follow him. Let's pray together. Father. We come to you and we praise you. We thank you. Lord, for even those times when you say no. Even those moments when you say, this is not good. Father, we praise you for those. Thank you for direction. Thank you for guidance. Thank you that we can have a foundation of truth. That we can live upon. 
Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. Some, Satan is, Lord, Satan is just tempting. Satan is just coming to them and they're attacking the truth in their life. They're appealing to their lust and their pride. God, help us that we would simply follow you. And Lord, obey your will for who we are. Lord, we ask now that you would just be with this moment of invitation. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand this morning?